Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 225, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 4. Last time, we covered the horrors of the Siege of Leningrad, including the incredible corruption by Soviet officials. Today's episode is one of the hardest I've ever written. Uh, it is very emotional. There are some parts in it that I did have quite a few tears shed because of what I had to hear and read from the people who lived in Leningrad, those who survived and those who didn't. But now we return to end the series with the impending liberation of the people and the defeat of the Germans at the gate of the city. The date we start with is January 1st, 1942. The siege is now entering its fourth month. What no one knew at the time is that it would last another two years. Aside from the human tragedy, Hitler had ordered the looting and destruction of a number of imperial palaces, including the Catherine Palace, Peterhof, Ropsha, Strelna, and Gatchina. So many artifacts of imperial Russia were lost, especially art treasures gathered over the centuries. While the citizens of Leningrad were suffering due to the lack of food, the German soldiers stationed around the city were suffering as well. Many were woefully under-equipped for the frigid temperatures of northern Russia. They also lacked adequate provisions like food and water to keep them in fighting condition. We have the diary of Lieutenant Fritz Hockenjoss to reveal to us how hard the situation was for the 215th Infantry Division of General Bush's 16th Army. Hockenhaus arrived in the Soviet Union on November 24, 1941. He described his encounter with Soviet prisoners of war in Riga, Latvia, working on the railway. Quote, They wear rags and have starved blank faces. They look so hungry, you think they're going to collapse at any moment. They came up to the train and started begging. I shrink from the comparison, but there is no other like animals. He further goes on to write, quote, The Latvian explained that in his camp, about 50 prisoners die every day from hunger or illness, or are shot while trying to escape. Hawkinjoss describes the peasants that he and his fellow soldiers met while heading to their final destination, an outpost eight kilometers behind the front lines. Quote, the poverty of these people surpasses all our previous conceptions of the peasants and workers' paradise. Fyodor hadn't seen tea or sugar for years, and tobacco and paraffin are luxuries. Sitting in the embers of the fire is a pot filled with potatoes and some sort of unidentifiable broth of which the family live from day to day. They drink water out of the samovar in old tin cans. When I gave little Kolya a roll of boiled sweets, the old woman grabbed it from him and put one in each can, adding hot water. The suffering of the German soldiers, while not as dire as the Russians, was pretty harsh. As the lieutenant writes, schnapps, tea, and army bread. Twenty of my men have frostbite, mostly of the worst degree. The feet of some have turned black. 
and they crawled to their quarters on hands and knees. By now, the rations for the troops of the Red Army were being cut. Frontline men would receive 600 grams of bread, down from 800. If you were in the rear, you would go from 600 to 400 grams. This would be followed by an additional number of cuts for civilians. The supplies that could make it into Leningrad was more like a trickle. To feed the hungry population, you would need to import millions of tons of food. By the end of April 1942, they were only able to bring in 270,900 tons of food and 90,000 tons of fuel and supplies. Due to the failure to take Leningrad and the failure of Operation Typhoon to take Moscow, Hitler began to sack the generals that led the attacks. Von Bock was relieved of his leadership of Army Group Center, and Brauchtisch lost his post as commander-in-chief, a position that was taken by Hitler himself. Forty senior officers either resigned or removed, including Rundstadt and von Lieb. This point, per the opinions of many World War II historians, was when Germany lost the war. It wasn't that they were losing it. They had just lost any opportunity of winning it. Not only were they bogged down in the Soviet Union, their allies, the Japanese, had bombed Pearl Harbor, and with that, brought another major player into the war, the United States. Eight days after the bombing, Hitler foolishly declared war on the United States. To make matters worse for both sides, the cold of northern Russia began to really set in. Normally, the temperatures in the area around St. Petersburg today have around minus 10 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit. In January 1942, it averaged 30 below centigrade or 22 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Death would now begin to take its toll on the 2.5 million inhabitants of the encircled city. In December of 1941, the official death toll was 52,881 for the entirety of the siege. In January, for the month alone, it rose to 96,751, and in February, it was 96,015. One chronicler wrote that she had observed, quote, lots of wooden boxes had been erected and filled with sand. There's no water, so these sandboxes are all we have to fight fires with. Today, walking along the street, I saw a very old woman sitting on one of the sandboxes. She was dead. A few buildings further on, another box. A dead boy slouched. He had been walking along, became exhausted, sat down, and died. Death was now part of life in Leningrad. As Anna Reed puts it in her book, Leningrad, Tragedy of the City Under Siege, quote, The soldiers who did the rounds of the streets picking up bodies dumped outside on pavements called their job gathering flowers because of the heads of the dead were often wrapped in bright colored cloth so as to make them easier to spot under the snow. Another victim of the starvation was the city's businesses and industry. People would fail to show up for work. As this report to Andrei Zhidanov points out, quote, Hundreds of people failed to appear for work. 
and nobody pays any attention. Every day, the number absent without leave rises. After the district park committee told the management that their behavior sheltered truants, in the course of two days, they brought proceedings against 72 absentees. But this was not the end of the management's mistakes. Of the 72 cases, half, to be, half had to be sent back again for lack of evidence. The winter of 1941-42 to 42 saw the death of approximately 500,000 people, roughly 20% of the population. Between the beginning of the siege in September 1941 and late summer of 1942, the death rate due to starvation went from a few hundred a month to over 100,000. Stories of cannibalism began to spread around the city. What is truly amazing is actually how rare it was, considering the suffering. As the author of The Legacy of the Siege of Leningrad, Liza Kirschenbaum notes that Rates, quote, of cannibalism provided an opportunity for emphasizing that the majority of Leningraders managed to maintain their cultural norms in the most unimaginable circumstances. It was more likely that you would be murdered for your ration cards than eaten by fellow citizens. There was a reported 1,216 deaths attributed to stealing ration cards during the winter of 41-42. The Lubyan offensive operation began on January 7, 1942, and would last for 16 weeks, ending on April 30th. It was focused on the southern shores of Lake Lagoda, trying to break through the German lines and help supply the city. It would result in 56,000 casualties for the Nazis and an astonishing 308,000 to the Red Army. The Soviet leaders knew that the siege of the city had to be lifted, so another of a series of offensives would begin on August 27, 1942, known as the Semyonov Offensive. It would last for eight weeks, ending in huge casualties for both sides. The Germans would lose 26,000, but the Soviets would lose over four times that many, with 113,000 dead, wounded, or sick. The Soviet offensive started just days before the Germans had plans to attack and destroy Leningrad, hoping it would allow a transfer of troops south to take Moscow and Stalingrad. The German plan was known as Operation Nordlicht, or Northern Light. It used troops made available by the capture of Sevastopol on July 4, 1942. But by attacking first, the Soviet Red Army blunted the German High Command's plans which likely saved the war effort for the Soviet Union. Throughout 1942, the two sides would battle each other. The Germans to continue with its tight grip around Leningrad, and the Soviets trying desperately to open a lane in which to increase the supplies reaching the city. Neither side would gain a clear-cut advantage. The people of Leningrad would continue to suffer, with thousands more starving. Rations would slowly increase, mostly due to the tremendous loss of life. The first major breakthrough the Red Army achieved was during Operation Iskra, which began on January 12, 1943. Its mission was to create a 10 to 12 kilometer land corridor. 
The battles that ensued would last until January 30th. While it did punch a hole into the German lines, the road it created was within Nazis' artillery's range. The next phase effort, Operation Iskra, was Operation Polyarnia Zivda, or Polar Star. It was meant to destroy the German Group North Army. While not entirely successful, it would greatly weaken the Nazi forces. Within this operation, there was the Battle of Krasny Bor between the 55th Army of the Soviets against the Spanish Blue Division. It would take place between February 10th and the 13th of 1943. The Spaniards would suffer extreme casualties, losing 70 to 75% of the men. The 55th Army of the Soviets would be completely destroyed, but their mission to take the Spanish forces out of the war was successful. Supplies were beginning to reach Leningrad, although not enough to return to pre-siege levels. People were getting enough just to survive. But instead of happiness, depression and the feeling of grief of being a survivor began to set in. As Mariah Mashkova would write, quote, Where can we find the strength to live happily, joyously, without endless worry? Why can't the children be the basis for happiness? They are good children, after all, and we should be living just for them. Why can't we suppress the fear that the rest of our lives will be nothing but strain and effort? Is it really just the lack of a piece of bread and a bowl of soup? Are our inner resources really so meager that this defines everything around us? The constant bombing raids and artillery shells raining down on Leningrad was also wearing the people down. Anna Ostromova Lebdeva would recall, quote, In between the whistles and bangs of the shells, I shouted, We're still here! We're still here! And remembering that she'd been abroad in the past, she added, For God's sakes, tell me what those flowers are called that grow up high in the snow in the Alps. I've been trying to remember all day. Cyclamen, yes, yes, cyclamen. By the end of 1943, the Germans were pulling back and the Soviets were beginning to press harder to open a larger hole to save the people of Leningrad. General Leonid Govorov was now in charge of a massive force of 1.23 million men. The Germans were down to 741,000, as well as being overwhelmingly outgunned. Now, the Red Army had twice as many guns and four times as many tanks and planes. The attack to destroy Army Group North and its grip on Leningrad began on January 14, 1944. According to Anna Reed, quote, In thick fog, 104,000 shells were fired in an hour and five minutes. As one German officer wrote in a letter to his wife, quote, We can forget about my leave. Here, a battle is boiling, which outdoes everything we've seen up to now. The Russians are advancing on three sides. We're living through hell. I can't describe it. If I survive, I'll tell you about it when we see each other. At the moment, all I can say is one thing. Wish me luck. 
The citizens of Leningrad were shaken up by the back-and-forth shelling between the two armies. As Olga Friedenberg writes, quote, Thunderous shelling. I looked at the clock to check the intervals between hits. Another crash, but this time no explosion. A dud must have hit a neighboring building. Yet another crash and the world reeled. We were hit. I looked up to see all the window panes fly out at once. And in flew the freezing January air. Superhuman powers were born within me. I seized the winter coat, wrapped Mama up in it, and dragged her heavy bed out into the corridor and into my own room. One of my windows was miraculously intact, and I stuffed the other with rags. The 18th and 19th must have been frightening to the citizens of Leningrad and the soldiers of both armies. The shelling went on almost non-stop. By the 22nd, the siege of Leningrad was nearing the end. On January 27, 1944, two years, four months, two weeks, and five days after the siege began, it was finally over. Vera Ingber would say this, quote, The greatest event in the life of Leningrad, complete liberation from the blockade. And here, though I'm a professional writer, words fail me. I simply state that Leningrad is free. Anna Reed in her book put the end this way, quote, The end, like the end of all great conflicts, left a vast silence the silence of hushed sirens and guns, of the never-to-return missing and dead, and in Leningrad's case, of grief and horror unexpressed, of facts falsified or left unsaid. While the siege was over, the fighting was far from finished. The Great Patriotic War, as the Soviets called it, would rage on for another year and three months. Millions of soldiers and civilians would die. Over 150,000 Soviet troops went missing, were injured, or died in the fighting after the liberation of Leningrad in the north. Those who would suffer the most after the war were the returning prisoners of war. Of the 4.8 million who were taken prisoners by the Germans, only 1.8 million remained. If they were Jewish were members of the Communist Party, they were summarily executed. Many died of starvation. When they were liberated from captivity, many were put back into camps as they were considered cowards or traitors. Those who survived this would be sent to the gulags. The city itself was a mess, having been hit by over 150,000 artillery shells during the two-plus-year siege including 10,000 bombs. While not as devastated as cities like Kharkov, Minsk, and Stalingrad, a lot of work was needed to bring it back to life. One of the buildings having some of the least damage, surprisingly, was the Hermitage. It was only hit twice. According to the official records, 650,000 to 690,000 civilians lost their lives during the siege of Leningrad. But when we look at the numbers today, a higher figure of 800,000 is more realistic. 
The pre-war population of Leningrad was 2.5 million, which means 32% of its people died in those brutal two years. Before we go, I want to share some diary entries and memories from a number of people who survived the siege. Also, the aftermath of the war brought some tragic stories, especially when those, as I mentioned, who were captured by the Nazis, the POWs, returned to the Soviet Union. Their fates were almost as tragic as the ones who survived the siege, some far worse. They all come from the book by Anna Reid, Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, 1941 to 1944. It is the best work on this tragic event. The first one comes from the 12-year-old Irina Bogdanova, when she heard the announcement about the liberation of Leningrad while staying in a children's home in Yaroslavl. Quote, Then, after a few minutes, in a corner of the dormitory, someone started crying. Then in another corner, another child, until we were all crying, and none of us wanted any breakfast or lunch, not until supper time, were the teachers able to coax us into the dining hall. It was because we suddenly realized that no one was waiting for us. Living in the children's home, we hadn't thought about this. We'd just been waiting for the war to be over. Only with victory did we have to come to terms with life again, and with all that we had lost. Next up, we have Olga Grichina who lived at boarding school number 43 during the last months. Quote, The staff gathered together in the evening. Instead of eating in their separate corners as usual, people brought out vodka. We sang, cried, laughed. But it was sad all the same. The losses were just too large. A great work had ended. Impossible deeds had been done. We all felt that. But we also felt confusion. How should we live now? And for what purpose? Olga Friedenberg, who lost her mother, had spent much of the siege just staring at a wall, or, like many others, cleaning her apartment over and over again. Quote, Now I have so much time. I feel cast away in it. All around me it stretches into infinity. I want to fill it by doing things, by moving about in space. But nothing helps. Only late in the evening do my spirits revive somewhat. Another day is over. Relieved, I lie down, and for seven hours I'm blissfully unaware of time. Waking up in the morning is frightful. That first moment of consciousness after the night. I am here. I am in time again. One of the saddest was the story of Vasily Cherkin, who lost both of his sons to war and his wife to starvation. He writes this about the time he returned to his apartment where his wife died. He had not been there for three days. Quote, An awful mess. The thieves have turned everything upside down. All the clothes, suits and coats, and valuables gone. Everything that didn't interest them and strewn about the floor. All I took was our photo album. Here they are, my darlings, looking silently up at me. I'll never see them again. I felt such pain that I burst into tears. 
One of the most famous of all of the diaries written during the Siege of Leningrad was written by a 14-year-old girl, Tanya Savicheva. Tanya would write down when each member of her family died. It would be used at the Nuremberg trials to detail war crimes committed by the Nazis. You can find this online, and I do suggest you can go to Wikipedia and actually type in Tanya Savicheva, and you can see the notes that she wrote. Uh, Before I read what she wrote, be prepared. It's very emotional. Zhenya died on December 28th at 12 noon. 1941. Grandma died on 25th of January at 3 o'clock, 1942. Lekka died March 17th, 1942, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uncle Vasya died on April 13th at 2 o'clock in the morning, 1942. Uncle Lesha, May 10th, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 1942. Mama on May 13th at 7.30 in the morning, 1942. The Savachevs are dead. Everyone is dead. Only Tanya is left. Signed, Tanya Savacheva. She would die on July 1st, 1944, of intestinal dis- tuberculosis. As for the former POWs that were liberated by the Allies after the war, their return to the Soviet Union was anything but pleasant. Because of Order Number 270 issued by Joseph Stalin, no soldier was to surrender to the Germans. They were either to die fighting or shoot themselves. Of the 4.5 million men who surrendered to the Nazis, most at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, as I mentioned, only 1.8 million were alive in May 1945. Upon returning to Soviet territory, they were put into NKVD-run filtration camps. It was to weed out anyone they believed were collaborators with the Germans and anyone they believed were not totally loyal to the USSR. The interrogation of these poor souls was particularly brutal. They would be asked questions like, Why didn't you shoot yourself instead of surrendering? Or what assignments were you given by the Gestapo and the Abwehr? Out of the 1.8 million, almost 90% were allowed to return home. About 238,000 were either killed or sent to the gulags as punishment. The worst of all, what is, what is now known as the reparation or betrayal of the Cossacks. The British and U.S. had a swarm of 50,000 Cossacks and others who fled the Soviet Union and formerly occupied areas. They fled to their side. They were boarded on trains and being told they would head west. Instead, they were sent to the Soviet Union to be interred and then worked to death in the gulags. This tragedy is something that I'm going to do an episode about sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as I begin a new series on the history of the old cities of the lands of the Rus. Cities like Kiev, Vladimir, Chernihiv, Novgorod, Smolensk, and many others. So as always, Das Vidanya is Spasiba Bolshoya.